You're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast, where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. We're your hosts, Brandon and Allison, and this week we are focused on cacao fermentation. We've talked about it before, but now we're going to really dive deep and figure out why flavor is affected by fermentation and why it's so important in cacao fermentation. All this and more in episode 58 of Firm Up. You're looking at the image, right? I'm looking at the image. Um, I'm surprised no one's commented me like, oh, Allison, ha, 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 ha. You said you're going to re-Twitter that. Yeah, no. I, I, I was showing you this link, which I'll put in the show notes. I'm showing you this link because of the uh, just the image, not so much the, the conversation that went on after that. So you don't have to worry okay. about knowing anything about Twitter or not uh, to know this, but it's Cultured Pickle Shop. Mm-hmm. I am inspired a lot of times by what they are fermenting, and this just sounds delicious. Turnips that are fermented in fennel and bee pollen brine. So I'm assuming brine meaning salt, salt brine. And mm-hmm. I would love to try something like this. And yeah. I, I think it looks delicious. And I think more so, I think it looks even more delicious because I'm reading that fennel and bee pollen aspect to it. It's like instead of just doing vegetables in a brine or even fennel and turnips in a brine, that bee pollen just adds something to it for me, at least in my mind. Um, no, what, what do you think the bee pollen? I mean, this might sound like a stupid question. Um, what is, what do you think bee pollen tastes like? I mean, do you think it's sweet? Like honey? Have you ever had bee pollen? No. It's been many years since I have. And now that I think about it, I don't remember it completely. And maybe that's why it sounds so good because I remember it from my childhood. I think my mom would give me like a spoonful of it every once in a while. And I, yeah, it tastes kind of like honey, but like a dry honey-ish kind of okay. thing. Is it like powder, powdery? Yeah, it's kind of – That yeah, you it's would like maybe a, mix with something? No. I mean I, I think a lot of times it's just as like a supplement type of thing. Does okay. that like – like you take a spoonful of it for a boost of energy or other okay, yeah. aspects I, that it supposedly has or doesn't have. But I think I've heard of people taking bee pollen as some sort of sup- – what you said, a supplement for – I don't know what the supplement, same thing as what you would take ginkgo biloba for or echinacea. It has some sort of herbal powers, but I don't know what it would be. Well, you have to figure that it is the bee's pollen. So it's a collection of a lot of different flowers. And so yeah. like you're getting a lot, a lot, a lot of complexity in those kind of flavors that would come out differently than say in the finished honey, even though different honey, different times of the season from different areas is going to taste different. The bee pollen mm-hmm. would I feel carry more of those characteristics with it from the the locale or the terroir would be in the bee pollen even more so than the honey, I would think. Sure. So different bee pollen tastes different. Bee My pollen guess. tastes different in different regions of the world. Yeah. Hmm. So, this, so this post, more than anything, gets me inspired to experiment a little bit more on what I'm putting in the brine. Yeah, because I kind of think of it a little bit like kimchi. You know, it's got the kimchi paste with the the, the garlic and the ginger and the red pepper and all of those different things. And then a lot of times I'll just, even when I'm doing something kind of like a crouchy, a little bit of a mixture, like I I don't think of the pastes or the what can be in the brine, like saturated in the brine nearly as often. A curtido, yeah, to a certain extent, like because that has sometimes dried oregano or uh, I guess that seems like a little bit more of a connotation to it than say like fresh oregano just seems more like fennel or other things. Mm-hmm. I I just, I'm interested in focusing on the brine. I'd like to t- step back even a little bit further and, and really focus on the, the bee pollen. I've wanted to raise bees for a while and it would be another benefit of doing that is get to try it with some, uh, with some fermentation, some of that bee pollen because I'd have a lot of access to bee pollen. Although I don't know how much bee pollen there is from a hive. I have a lot of learning to do. That's uh yeah I w- yes I I just think everyone should look at this yes I I think it sounds like a great mixture everyone should be following Culture Pickle Shop anyway on on Twitter or if you don't do Twitter I don't know if they're posting as many photos otherwise they have a great blog too I'll try and remember to put that in the in the show notes as well but uh, you will at least find a link to this Twitter post in at, at the show notes at firmup.com/podcast/fifty-eight and so uh, I definitely recommend everyone at least take it take a take a gander. But one thing that I did want to follow up on was in regard to uh, my asking questions about eggs and undercooked eggs in custard being incubated. And uh, the one thing I realized is that I had misread the 
uh, directions, it's 82.5 degrees centigrade is what the mix of dairy and sugar and salt and egg are cooked to before it's cooled down, incubated, and then the uh, allowed to culture uh, at incubated temperatures. So it's already about 82.5 is over one the 160 degrees Fahrenheit requirement to wipe out salmonella or anything. So we're not even dealing with undercooked eggs. So my question was really a moot point, but yeah, I mean, did you, did you look anything up more about that just in regard to what I was asking about? Well, I didn't look at the recipe specifically, but it just, I haven't looked into pathogenic bacteria for a really long time, probably since I was an undergrad in college. So, um, you know, after we talked, I was, I was so, fuzzy and what I was saying that I wasn't, I just wasn't very confident. And so I hope I didn't mislead lead people into anything. I did want to bring some things up that I had found about salmonella. So, um, and why in fermentation, it's really, I don't want to say it's not important, but it's because it's something you should still be aware of. But again, like salmonella, it's pretty much killed when you eat anything um, that's cooked above 165 degrees Fahrenheit. Salmonella doesn't really grow too well. And um, there's a salt brine that's above 2%. So if you have a salt brine, the the typical salt brine is what, 2.5% or that's kind of where people usually start their salt brines. Is that right? Yeah, two to three percent. So even just the just the normal, even if someone's on the low side on two. Yeah. So you don't really have to worry too much about salmonella just because of that. They are very sensitive to salt. And um, if it's above the concentration is above two percent, then um, it they will probably not grow. And then the other thing is I had talked about pH a little bit and the, that magic number that I keep talking about that four point two um, pH. And uh, I, you know, there's always Every bacteria and yeast has a, a range of growth um, that they can grow in. Um, so you can say, like, I, I know from looking up information, salmonella has um, a temp or a pH range between 3.6 to 9.5. That's a huge pH range, but it's optimal pH, meaning that in the right conditions, if you're not including the salt brine or, you know, everything else is pretty nice, um, its optimal pH is at 6.5 to 7.5. So again, as long as you have the salt brine at a little over 2%, you shouldn't be too concerned with the pH because then that, you know, as the fermentation goes on, the pH is going to drop and it's going to not fall below, you know, maybe three. I don't know how low a certain fermentation will go, but you don't have to be too concerned um, because optimally it'll, it won't grow if it's not between 6.5 and 7.5. So then that's more looking at say vegetables with the, with that kind of pH and that kind of aspect there. Yeah. And the other thing that I found um, that I forgot about too is um, salmonella is not really a good competitor in raw foods such as vegetables. They just don't grow very well. Um, They ideally grow in um, what, what would be the right word to use? Um, Meats, in poultry, eggs, um, anything like that. But in fruits and vegetables, they're not really that common. I know that there's been a lot of outbreaks with like spinach and orange juice and fruit and stuff like that. But that's, I think, mostly due to human contamination. And so this is a good argument for fermentation of vegetables anyway. I mean, because it's arguably safer to eat fermented spinach. Not that I'm really fermenting spinach that often, but uh, any any vegetable that has, has had an outbreak of salmonella or other pathogen really doesn't have a chance of surviving in the environment of that high salt concentration in the brine and there's just and once that ph changes there's really not a chance of it surviving for the most part i mean the the risk is so low right and um oh the other thing that i had mentioned was you only needed you meaning the the culture itself only needed to have um 10 cells to make someone sick and that is true um and that's true for people who have a compromised immune system so people who are pregnant um, and also the elderly children are also susceptible. So I'm, I mean, the general human population, healthy adults, um, you need a lot more, a lot more cells um, between 10, I'm sorry, 100,000 to 10 million. Um, so, I mean, really contaminated 
a piece of meat or something like that with salmonella for a healthy individual to get sick. But you can't get sick if you are having a compromised immune system, you, you know. Um, so that is something that I did also want to bring up. So. so then I do have a question since a lot of this came up, not necessarily in general fermentation, but in regard to specifics to fermenting with eggs, uh, which isn't as common. But one way that I do think of it is I like adding an egg into my uh, like a yogurt hamburger bun that I make. And it just it helps with the the texture and consistency of uh, and and springiness I feel to the the finished product. I do put that in, and it does ferment along with it for a few hours. Now, as far as I understand, it doesn't matter. Like uh, salmonella dead cells aren't going to harm someone; they have to be active. Correct? I believe so. I don't think that salmonella can create spores or um, – I don't think that that should be a, um, a problem just because you are also cooking it too. So any cells are going to die when um, you bake it, bake your bread. Well, I, yeah, because it's like 160, 165 mm-hmm. is the, the, uh, the, the standard for when it would cook out. I mean, I'm talking about a, a 350 degree oven. These are small little buns. So then they would definitely, the internal temperature would have to get up above that, I would assume. So I, I think that like, I still feel very comfortable with doing that. The one thing that I want to look up in the future, I'm not exactly sure what, if I will find anything at all, but I'd like to look up fermenting eggs. Like, I wonder if there's any traditions besides like, you know, there's the thousand year old egg or a hundred year old egg or however that's referred to, but I'm interested to see about those kind of processes and if there's really even any chance or if there is risk involved in doing those. Yeah. And I mean, I've, I've heard of the fermented, the hundred year old egg. I think we even mentioned it and that, cause it's one of those stinky uh, fermentations, right? Well, and it's not always fermented either. Sometimes um, it's just chemical to give it that color. Oh yeah, that's right. Um, so I don't think you have to be too, con- I, I don't know. That's a really good, great question. Um, we should follow up on that. And, um, I just want, I I think maybe we should just do an entire episode on fermenting with eggs, which then would at least also cover some, some talk of salmonella because it's kind of like fermenting meat. Can't not talk about Clostridium botulinum. So, you know, it's like, it's, it's just gotta come up. Yeah. So we'll, we'll talk about it more in the future. Food protection. Food protection. So stay safe, Mm -hmm. which again, don't really have to worry about too much with a lot of these fermented foods. And, uh, Speaking of neat, cool things and things that you don't have to worry about the safety of are is is chocolate. Yeah. Did you uh, did you look at this uh, WNYC Last Chance Foods? Or well, I guess maybe there is at risk. I guess the title is Last Chance Foods: Why You Shouldn't Eat Raw Chocolate. I and listened to it the other day. It's a it's a good if if anyone's not listening to if a person likes food in general and not just fermentation listen to the podcast version of the WNYC's Last Chance Foods there's lots of good information about foods this one specifically from February 14th very fitting talk about chocolate on Valentine's Day but I'm a little late getting caught up to it but they're talking about a large portion in there they're talking about the fermentation of cacao and and that makes for a that that's what makes a lot of the flavor and this cacao Prietro, but it's a, it's a Brooklyn based beans to bar chocolate maker. And, uh, this Daniel Prieto Preston, he was talking about specifically how they control the whole process throughout. They have a farm in Dominican Republic and they use direct set starter cultures. They're using isolated strains of bacteria and yeast to ferment their chocolate. And that's not very common. And so I really wanted to look into that, but just your initial thoughts. Does that sound cool? Not so cool. What did you think of the the actual talk itself? I thought it was really neat. Um, just because I don't really know how I did not know how chocolate was fermented. Um, before I listened to it, I didn't know if you listen to it. Um, um, Daniel says that they specifically that um, when they cut down the fruit, the cacao fruit, they throw it on the ground and they make a pile. Um, I don't know how long or wide, um, but it's five feet tall. Did he did he mention how long it is? But just basically a pile 
of well there's actually a few methods okay I, I, i've been doing my research so but yes <laughs> one of the ways that he was talking about is is common yeah and they throw it you throw it on the ground and it sits there for five days and ferments that way um and I was not aware of that. I mean, I've heard of some other methods of um, cacao fermentation, but um, that was one I hadn't heard of before. Even if it may be the most common, I wasn't aware of that. So, um, and I so I thought that was really neat. Yeah, and and if one point of reference for anyone that's interested, I went through a little bit of chocolate harvest and fermentation pre Allison times back in episode twenty four. Um, I went over chocolate harvest and fermentation pretty basic overview of it. And after hearing this and having known at least a little bit of how chocolate was fermented or cacao, cacao being the precursor to roasting, conching, turning it into the product known as chocolate, the, uh, the, the bean itself is actually a seed of a fruit, but uh, we call them cacao beans or cocoa beans a lot of times, uh, but it's, it's cacao. And I just really wanted to look at this because I was like, well, does it really need to be starter cultures? I mean, why, why control that? I mean, he was talking about pathogens being an issue and that's, that's the reason I think the title says don't eat raw chocolate is because it's not necessarily safe according to his, uh, his understanding of, of chocolate fermentation. So it's, it's in, I guess, important to pay attention if a person's going to imbibe or eat cacao raw I had some like raw cacao nibs that pathogens could be a part of that, but the natural fermentation process from what I was looking at does seem to protect that a lot. I, after doing some research though, I kind of could see where the benefits potentially could be in controlling the entire process in order to control the final flavor. Because again, it's a commercial production. It's not, well, I guess most chocolate is a commercial production. I considered making it myself at one point, but it's, there's, there's a lot more equipment involved than something like roasting coffee. So I kind of put that one off, but it's interesting. So I, again, did a lot of research on this just today. So I know you haven't had a chance to really digest much of it. And so if you just, I guess, jump in at any point and just like, tell me what you think about all of this stuff. But it, it's, it's fascinating. And I think everyone should know more about chocolate fermentation. Yeah. And the other thing that, um, that Preston says in the interview, um, that everyone can listen to, but also in the text part of it, it says that there are 400 different microorganisms, um, in the fermentation during the fermentation. So did you find any sort of research that maybe, or any information as to what these 400 different types of microorganisms are? And well, the different microorganisms are going to be yeast, lactic acid, bacteria, acetic acid, bacteria, and then sporulating bacteria and molds. So I, I, more specific than that, I didn't really dive a lot deeper than that, but it pretty much covers the whole spectrum of microbes mm -hmm. in fermentation hmm. and they're all important in different stages as well. Yeah. Oh, okay. So that, so they would be important in different, the different stages would be important for different flavor production. Is that? Yeah. And you, well, yeah, let me, let me step back and you just jump in at any point okay. with any questions or like uh, comments, because I am interested to hear what you think about certain of these, these things, but like the, the basics are in regard to the fermentation method, like you were talking about, like, I don't know if he, I, it sounds like he was referring to the heat method, which is a method that it just heaping the, the cacao pulp. Uh, I mean, it's, it's removed from the husk or the, the fruit outer body. And it's these seeds on the inside, these fleshy seeds, the seeds and the pulp get fermented together. And so putting it out on a heap is one way to do that. And, uh, also putting it in boxes is another way. I do remember from episode 24, that I showed a video from Vietnam of a, a process using box, the box method. And so it's the, like the, the heat method, the temperature increases much faster at the beginning stages and it's sometimes more uniform, but it's still similar to the box method. And the box method is just like, it sounds putting things in a container of sorts, uh, open top as far as I remember, but it, it relatively low concentrations of sugar, ethanol, and acidic acids that form in that, in that process in the beginning stages. And then it increases as the temperature, it, the temperature increases. And so what's the real difference between those two? Most of the literature seems to say that they're both kind of the same. And when I say literature, also I'm referring to a lot of this came from the, uh, an, an article optimizing chocolate production, which is kind of a meta analysis of most of the current research. So it was a great place to look to kind of get an overview of all this stuff. And 
that's kind of the main two methods. There's also platform method, which is kind of obsolete. And then there's also a, an, a basket method, which really is non-existent, but still a method that's out there. And again, there's other things out there, but those are like the industry standards. But like the actual thing that's really interesting is the fermentation process, because I didn't realize how many stages there were with so many different bacteria that actually do make a, a huge difference. And that was one thing that really drew me in. And, and so it's, it's like a, a systematic microbial succession. It's, it's, there's at the beginning, it favors the yeast and it's initially a low pH in the pulp. And then that causes the presence uh, of a citric acid and it lowers the oxygen levels with those, with those yeast there. And then producing the ethanol and then they produce different enzymes. And then the yeast then are only really in the first 24 hours, most active. Then it turns over to lactic acid and that stage lasts till about the 36th hour in the fermentation. Then at the uh, 48th hour, it's really been taken over by acidic acid. And this is all really happening in a very short period of time from two to six days for most of the fermentation. And, uh, but once you get to the acidic acid stage, it's the increased temperatures and it's a, it goes up to 122 degrees Fahrenheit or 50 degrees Celsius. So it gets, it can get pretty hot in there. And I guess most of that is due to the acetic acid. Um, but there are a lot of proteins and, and different things that are being altered both from the heat and from the enzymes that have been produced throughout this entire process. And, uh, the very end is those spore forming bacteria and molds. And those ones are the ones that are creating, um, off flavors generally, but they do create a, a variety of, of chemical compounds as well. So I kind of see it as like not all chocolate or not all cacao goes to that stage of fermentation, but those that do are walk teetering a line of funk and uh, intrigue and complexity. So do um, cacao producers that sell the cacao bean, um, once they extract the beans and everything from the fruit, is that kind of where they stop the fermentation right before it starts to get a little funky with the spore forming bacteria and molds? Like, or do they go ahead and go through this? I probably should have let you finish talking before I ask my question. Um, do they let the, this is this part of the actual process of fermenting the cacao bean? Yeah, it's it, well, it, it is an active process. It's an important step to be aware of, but it's not always a step that's done. Um, so, and it's not always a step that's meant to happen. So mold sometimes is forming and it wasn't, it wasn't part of the intended process, but just given the different methods that are used and the, the time that it, it needs to be stored after it ferments or it needs to be transported after it ferments. So you know, sometimes if the storage temperatures are correct or different things like that, you're going to get some of these things. But without diving deeper, I don't know the specifics on whether or not any of the spore forming bacteria or molds are desired, but they do create a, a, a variety of those chemical compounds. So, uh, and they do contribute to acidity and there is the desire for a certain level of acidity, whether or not that would take it over may be dependent on both the style or not the style, but the the, the varietal of cacao and the environment and how long it needs to be stored after that. Those are kind of my, my speculation on, on that aspect of it. But it, the acidic acid, the, those, those bacteria are, that's kind of where it ends for most of it because that's kind of after five to six days and that's where most end. Mm -hmm. That's where most will stop. Hmm. Huh. I didn't know that about, um, cacao fermentation, the spore forming bacteria and mold. And I didn't realize that the fermentation was five to six days um, of it sitting out in a tropical jungle where they just kind of leave it there. Uh, so, cause usually it's in it, most fermented foods or, or industrial fermented foods are in a very controlled environment. Um, even if it is a quote unquote wild fermentation, um, people are still monitoring it and taking samples of it. And I, whether they do this or not for the cacao bean, I'm there. I'm sure that they probably have some sort of internal regulatory QA, QC, person watching out for these things to make sure that it, the fermentation is happening the way it should be naturally. Um, but I didn't really think too much of it whenever I eat chocolate. I just always, I guess when I eat chocolate, I think of the more chemical changes that are happening after 
the beans have been processed um, because I know that the cacao um, fat that's in the beans is really important to having different and also, um, you know, the 80% or the 70% cacao versus milk chocolate or dark chocolate, that sort of thing. Like, milk chocolate always not chocolate. <laughs> that's exactly what um, – oh, what is his name? Um, Derek? Daniel. Daniel. Daniel said. He said that's not real chocolate. Yeah, I mean, I and I've gone through phases where I felt that way. If I eat a lot of um, darker chocolates regularly, I lose the taste for milk chocolate. If I eat a lot of milk chocolate, then I um, don't have as much of a hankering for those dark chocolates. It's kind of like I get used to either way. And right now I'm probably more in, in junk chocolate territory. Not that I eat a huge amount of chocolate, but yeah, I just – it's – it's just not the, I mean, it's just, I'm eating it for the, like the sweet aspect as opposed to like the, the enjoyment of flavors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can definitely taste a difference between milk chocolate and dark chocolate. Um, and I would hope so. Yeah. I mean, and, uh, and also, um, or, um, when it, it, I can't think of the specific word, the, the scientific term that's used, but, um, it also has a different texture when it's inside your mouth. You know, dark chocolate, it kind of falls in my mouth. It kind of breaks apart a little um, more of like a chalky. It doesn't leave a chalky flavor, but you know how if you had a piece of chalk and you were to crumble it in your hands, that's kind of how it feels whenever I eat dark chocolate. Whereas milk chocolate, I mean, it's silky and smooth. and But I've never really thought – I mean, that's what I think of when I think of chocolate is that whole process of how to get those different types of chocolate. I never really thought even before when they're harvesting the cacao bean and how that happens. You just equated dark chocolate to chalk. Well, I'm not saying that it tastes can, like chalk. Or I don't know if we can it, finish this conversation. <laughs> I'm not. I mean, it it's brittle. It's a lot more brittle than milk chocolate. Yeah, I, I guess I see. It? Well, it's not. It's it doesn't have that same creaminess. Yeah, I do find that like a nice, high quality dark chocolate will melt kind of like I mean that's kind of one way to enjoy it is just have a little square of it put it on the tongue and then kind of let it melt between the roof of the mouth and the tongue uh, and then you wouldn't get that potential chalkiness I mean I guess I kind of can wrap my mind around how you're describing it I don't really get that sense but like a like not in the dryness aspect because it's still like I guess it's not really too moist either but yeah no I I I will accept your description of it even it's, though I it's a little more brittle that's, I guess, a better way of putting it. Then, and yeah. if you, I mean, I don't take a bite out of like a dark chocolate candy bar or anything like that. Like you would, you know, like I should just take a bite out of it. But um, if you break it up and stuff and you have like a bigger piece that you have to break up with your mouth a few times, then it gets a little more brittle. It's a little more brittle than milk chocolate. Oh, see, anyway. you're, you're eating it wrong. You need to get little dainty bites. You need to get your little pinky up in the air and... <laughs> It is. It's very, it's very gourmet. And chocolate is something that I don't really think of sometimes as gourmet. I guess when you're at the, when you're at the grocery store at the checkout line, you see all different kinds of chocolate, but that's all milk chocolate. Usually it's the Hershey's chocolate and stuff like that, which is still good, but I don't think of that as gourmet. But if you go to a specialty grocery store, they usually have an aisle full of different varieties of chocolate and stuff. And those are fun to try. Well, if you go the next stage over like most of what's available at the grocery stores, I don't know. Maybe they have some of this company that was on the WNYC program. They Maybe they have some of theirs in grocery stores, but most of the time those are from specialty stores or direct. And like that's when chocolate really is transforming is that's when the reason for making specific choices along the line start to make sense because the complexity and the differences between these single origin chocolates starts to be mind opening. It's like, wow, these really do taste a lot different. Yes. I can taste Tawar in these different uh, chocolate bars when chocolate's just a, a generic dark chocolate mixed from multiple regions, multiple farms, then it starts to kind of just be homogenized. But when it's like a single origin, single lot kind of chocolate, that's when the flavors can really be um, life-changing. But then again, if like I'm right now, I eat a lot of milk chocolate, so I can't really talk. But it, it, but definitely search some of these places out, and I'm sure this place in Brooklyn is probably that way too. And and the the interesting thing is that you're not going to get this amazing kind of chocolate finished product 
even if it is roasted, you're not going to get the same amazing flavor if it's not fermented. I mean, uh, coffee can be fermented. It's not always fermented. That's like another, like coffee and chocolate, both tropical plants kind of seem similar to me in a lot of ways. And the fermentation's somewhat similar in some styles, but it's way different in that like coffee can still taste good, even if it's a mild fermentation or not the same kind of fermentation. But when it comes to chocolate, it has to be there. And like, so amino acids, that's one of the things it's, it's affecting and the microbial activity is creating enzymes and those enzymes are then breaking down cell walls. And, uh, then those are turned into peptides and free amino acids. And then those free amino acids and peptides are along with the reducing content of sugar through the fermentation process, a part of what sets the cacao up for roasting and what will create that Maillard reaction. And that's what I, I guess I'm referring to when I'm talking about it won't actually make a finished chocolate product the same way, because if there's not the compounds necessary for the Maillard reaction, that browning reaction that creates so much of the flavor that humans and at least adults kind of seem to, to easily grow a liking for, uh, or I guess uh, people in general, Maillard reaction on meat and all kinds of things and coffee and chocolate. I mean, there's so many things to love about the Maillard reaction that if it's not, if those things aren't there, it's not going to be the same Maillard reaction. Do you say Maillard or do you say Mallard? I say Mallard, but I mean, I, you know, tomato, tomato, it's all the same. I, I think it is. I mean, I know it's someone's name, so I'm sure it's supposed to be one way or another, but my, I've always said my, my art and my I have art, found a yeah. few people that have said it that way. So I'm not like the only freak. No, it's, I think it's, again, it's just that tomato, tomato. There's lots of different ways of pronouncing it. Um, but yeah, there's probably a, a correct way, but I've heard it both ways. So we're probably both mispronouncing it since it's a foreign name, I'm assuming. Yeah. Um, who knows? We. Unless someone tells us how you pronounce it, I will just keep. I'll just call it my myard ma, mal, mallard. However, see, it's, yeah. see, maybe now I'll convert you. <laughs> it's like kefir. Um, kefir. Yeah, we had that whole discussion a few weeks ago. Um, but the other th- really neat thing about Preston and um, Daniel Daniel, his last name is Preston, um, is that he also. I you may have briefly mentioned this, but we didn't really talk about it too much. Is he created um, a controlled fermentation where he uses um, a lab-grown strain of yeast to ferment his cacao beans? And the yeast make a little bit more sense. Mm-hmm. Like the the yeast do, but the the bacteria not as much. It will make some bit of a difference. It would seem from this little bit that I understand more about it now. But like the the lactic acid bacteria and the acetic acid bacteria, those really are more, they're less dependent on environment, whereas the yeast are all over the place. So like uh, taking a batch of cacao and letting it spontaneously ferment, that same batch being split in half and one section ferments at the farm and one section ferments at the factory processing fermentation center where they would normally do it. Those would arguably be very drastically different environments. The lactic acid bacteria and acetic acid bacteria don't change much. So it seems that most of that is on the skin of the cacao. And I don't know if he's talking about first sterilizing even the outside of the cacao before it's even broke, or if he is mainly talking about controlling the yeast, because again, those can be all over the place and they do, again, they're the first ones to really take hold and kind of set up the place. And I can understand maybe that some of the compounds that the yeast in the enzymes, that the yeast would create and start the cycle would be important to control possibly. Yeah, and I'm not quite sure what he means by sterilized first. Um, Does he say that? I didn't know if he did. Yeah, he says the word sterilized. And I know that in the food industry, there are different – in the food industry, sterilized means something different than, say, in the medical community. Sterilized in the medical community means, like, everything is clean and sterile. Nothing's going to grow on it because – that's just what the word means in the medical industry. But in the food industry, sterile – I believe I will look up the definition to double check, but it just means that it's sterile in the sense that no organisms in that right condition, um, like what I mentioned earlier with salmonella, there has to be the right kind of conditions, like the water activity, which is another um, food science word, where the available water in the solution 
is right with the right pH, with the right temperature, the right humidity and stuff for the microorganisms to grow. So I don't know how he means sterilized in this sense. Um, well, I'm assuming that however he's doing, he's wiping out the LAB and the AAB from the from the outer surface. Like he's cleaning the outer surface. Okay. So whatever that would, however that would happen, I'm assuming because it's a big fruit. So I would assume that maybe they just all go some through some kind of cleansing bath to just wipe them out before they get broken open because all of the the microbes would be on the outside of that. Oh, see, see, I would, I would say then that to me that seems like he's just washing them, sanit- sanitizing more so than sterilizing. Sanit- but you can't but- wash the like. Can you really wash off lactic acid bacteria just with like soap? Um, I wish I could be confident in this answer and say yes, but, um, I know that you can wash off a lot of cells, uh, just by using soap. That's what soap is slightly, I mean, soap is designed to remove dirt, um, and oils and that sort of thing. But I know that soap is also like antimicrobial soap obviously would, um, kill bacteria, um, and certain wash, types of wash them away. Yeah. Wash them away as well. Um, and I know that gram positive bacteria are very, very sensitive to a lot of things in the environment. So soap could possibly be one of those detergents that, um, would affect their cell walls and create some sort of, um, difference in permeability, water permeability cell so that they would become dehydrated and then eventually die. Or not eventually, but that that's one way of them to be killed. So I think you, you can wash it off. But most people don't really wash stuff off like fruits and vegetables with soap. Right? Well, I don't. I, I mean, I'll admit I don't wash my apples with soap. No, and I, I'm assuming that there's still some some microbes, some little microbes on there. But um, but But either way, whatever he's doing to sterilize them, if that's what he's doing, then he's changing this whole process completely and controlling it from the beginning to end. Mm-hmm. Like, because there are actually quite a few other things than just the amino acids that are, are, that are changing in this process. I mean, there's the, there's the sugars, the pyrazines, the pH and the polyphenols. All of those are being changed in the process. I, it, the sugars uh, the, through hydrolysis, the starch are being converted into sucrose and the sucrose is being converted into glucose and fructose, which again is part of the process required to ready the cacao beans for Maillard reaction and the development of uh, the flavor compounds that we know as chocolate. And then we have the, the pyrazines. Pyrazines, I don't really know much about those. Are you familiar with uh, what those are? Because it's important in the fermentation process. Yeah. All I know about pyrazines from school and looking stuff up is that they are um, aromatic compounds that are really volatile. So they, it, um, once they touch, hit the air at a certain temperature and that sort of thing, they um, uh, dissipate from the solution into the air. Um, white wine has a lot of pyrazines um, in it, and that's why it's so fruity smelling um, when it's um, at warmer temperatures. And that's why they usually suggest you uh, put it in the fridge for a little bit to keep some of those volatiles in there longer. Because if you change temperature, then they're not as volatile at a different temperatures, but... Well, at a side note, and I could have the numbers way off at this point because I, it's been years since I've really looked at that statistic. But the, the interesting thing about complexity in different beverages, you take something like wine and you take something like coffee. And again, coffee, oftentimes fermented, creates a lot of volatile compounds in that process and just the by itself. Uh, and whereas like wine has like somewhere between two and 400 volatile compounds uh, generally measured in them coffee can have up to 800. So like the complexity of coffee is way more than wine, at least if a person's able to uh, differentiate many of those compounds. Yeah. And see, I don't, I don't, I guess I don't have that ability because I, coffee smells great, especially when it's brewing and when it's being roasted, I think it smells amazing. Um, but to me, it just smells like coffee. It doesn't, I can't get out, can't get more than maybe like two or three different types of aromas. Whereas with wine, white wine, red wine or something, I can get a lot more compounds maybe because, I've, um, not that I've don't appreciate coffee and I appreciate wine more, but maybe I've really focused on it more from the wine aspect or the wine side than the coffee side. Well, I think that's the case with any of these kind of things, any of these kind of things that ha- I, I, I would go back to. So pyrazine seem like they're very important because if it's vol- volatile compounds is what we're talking about there, then 
these volatile compounds, I think, are acquired in the sense of being able to know, like, if something to be able to compare different, uh, like a coffee to a coffee, a chocolate to a chocolate, a, a wine to a wine, to be able to do those kind of things, it means. Uh, uh, having an educated palate or, or whatever. It's not something that someone can just pick up out of nowhere, but through continued uh, connection with these different foods or beverages, I think that it's possible for anyone to start to, to a certain extent, be able to differentiate them because, and, and really probably what a lot of it is, you've probably tried two wines next to each other. The likelihood of you having tried two different chocolates or two different, uh, two or three different kinds of coffee side by side most people aren't doing that. And so I think that's why like you're not getting a flight of coffee where, where is if you do that, then you'll start to see, whoa, these coffees are way different. That's true. I mean, I don't really do that. I make my coffee in the morning and I drink, drink it. And some days it tastes good. Other days it doesn't taste so great just because, but it's the same coffee. It's just more of the person making it, you know, that sort of thing. Um, well, but, that brings, yeah, then that's the, that's so that's the complexity different. of it. Yeah. Too. That's, that's different. That's, I don't want to say human error. It's just differences in, how I made it versus how my husband makes it something like that. Oh man, the scientist in you. I mean, I, I, I think I could convert you to being a, a coffee appreciator. Well, on a deeper level. I mean, like we're, we are, we went through a spell a really bad coffee spell, um, where every time we made it, it did not taste very good. And we both admitted it. So, um, it is something that we're consciously doing. And, um, We've been kind of doing some little experiments every well every day. Whenever you know we brew, we we try during during the week since um, we get up really early and go to uh, jobs and stuff like that. Um, we make it the night before, and so we realize like uh, probably shouldn't leave it out overnight. But it just makes it so much easier the next day to have the automatic coffee pot come on. But during the weekends, we focus a little more on it. Um, but during the week, we're kind of fiddling around with the volume and the to the coffee to the grams that we're putting into the coffee maker with the water all that kind of stuff so we haven't hit the right point yet that we both like it you should just be drinking boxed wine as the equivalent <laughs> i know it sounds terrible we're working on it no it's it's okay i won't, I won't be a coffee snob on, on the show but uh, and anyway we're talking about we're supposed to be talking about chocolate and it's just so easy to get off topic because oh. again these things are like so uh interconnected i think because they're the more complex flavor that come from fermentation and um i guess just going through that quickly like why why because again polyphenols are are changed during it uh, ph is changed uh, it levels out around five if that's of interest to anyone but the the reason to control the ferment is because knowing the amino acid composition is extremely important in predicting the the flavor compounds in the final chocolate. And so knowing the amino acids or controlling for the amino acids can mean that a, a, the chocolate flavor can be controlled and even taking into consideration the Maillard reaction that will happen later. And I mean, there's other aspects of how much amino acid in there, eight uh, to 14 milligrams per gram of, of dry matter of, of total amino acids is what high quality cacao is, is considered. And then, uh, protein content also decreases during the fermentation process. Also another part of uh, what's important about creating those flavors, sugars decrease 84 to 90% during fermentation. The pyrazine, again, those volatile compounds, uh, they, they are, the, the, they're the precursors to a lot of the flavors and, and that is important in the fermentation process. And then there's, there are actually quite a few different things that are going on looking at my notes here that are maybe less important to really mention, but like, uh, if the pH changes too extremely fast in the beginning, it's going to affect the flavor in the end. So that would be another reason why maybe control it with starter cultures is it's, if it's, if you can control how fast it's going to ramp up even, then that would definitely, I mean, we're talking about five or six days. I mean, a lot can happen quickly in short periods of time. So being able to control the, how fast the acid level builds would finish affect the final flavor. And then the, 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 the thing with polyphenols, the really important thing to understand about those, they get reduced during fermentation and that's what gives chocolates. It's astringency and bitterness. So my guess, and this is more of an assumption, is that most dark, like people that don't like dark chocolate, 
it's either been over roasted. So like a, a crappy roast to the coffee, or it was a low quality coffee or, or sorry, not coffee, chocolate. It was a, a low quality ferment or product or the fermentation process and probably had more polyphenols in it because a lot of times that's what people talk about when they don't like dark chocolate is they talk about astringency and bitterness. And yes, there is bitterness and a likable bitterness to chocolate, but it's not an, it's not over that unlikable. There's, there's, there's bitter and astringent in a bad way. And then there's bitter and astringent or like not as much astringency, but there's a bitterness in a good way. So those polyphenols need to be out. And if it doesn't ferment, then they're not. That's uh, that's kind of so. So then, all of those kind of things they can all be controlled, and it's not actually that common from what I was looking at too to use starter cultures and uh, like this. This meta analysis was actually referring to wines and and cheeses and how it's so prevalent and how control for different things that are not being necessarily taken advantage of in in regard to 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 chocolate and uh, one of the other reasons to use. The LAB um, in for a, a starter culture would be for to him the growth of pathogens because listeria, um, monocytogens, E. coli, salmonella, those are three main ones that do show up in raw cacao at times, but they're they're not. It, but it's not really that common. I mean, the LAB do a pretty good job of keeping those out anyway. So I don't know about the premise that eating raw chocolate is actually dangerous or bad or highly risky is totally founded, but I'm sure this guy does chocolate all the time. I'm sure he has a much better idea, but it may also be a little bit more of an opinion um, from what I was looking at so far. But again, this is just a preliminary and I'm sure he's done way more looking into this. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's a valid point for him to bring up to cover his his end too about not eating raw cacao. But, um, you know, again, going back to me mentioning people of being susceptible um, and if if you are pregnant or have an autoimmune disease or something like that, then those people are probably at higher risk, obviously, than um, you, you or me or um, anyone else. So who are just healthy people. Um, so maybe, I mean, that's just something to throw out there. It's the same thing as eating pregnant women and people with autoimmune hmm. disease shouldn't be eating sushi. Um for some of the same reasons for those pathogenic bacteria that are that can be present, um, not that they are present in sushi and that sort of thing. They go through a whole – I don't really know how they grade sushi and stuff like that, but that's a whole different can of worms. You said eating pregnant women. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. assuming that was a slip-up. <laughs> that was a slip-up. <laughs> I was slightly distracted. I don't know if you could hear, but my dog was barking again, so I'm sorry. Tremors. Yeah, I don't know. He's going crazy tonight, so I apologize. It's okay. He's, he's had enough of this chocolate conversation. Yeah. He's like, stop. He's like, I can't We're have done. any. I can't have any. I'm a dog. Um, which I, I wonder how true that is because some, t- some, I mean, people probably don't, you know, things fall on the ground and I'm sure that my dog at some point has probably had a little bit of chocolate, but not enough to um, really hurt him. But better be careful. You might have the uh, animal cruelty groups coming after you I know. if you admit oh, to that. no. But it is actually, I, I, I had a close call one time or thought I did, but it's actually based on both the size of the dog and it's mostly in dark chocolate. So sounding like in your house, you probably don't have much dark chocolate around. So it's probably okay. There's really, it's, a dog would have to eat a lot, like a lot of milk chocolate of any size dog would have to eat a lot in order to, to have issues with milk chocolate. Dark chocolate's the main issue. Eat a whole dark chocolate candy bar and if the dog's a little smaller or medium size, that's a lot more dangerous. I mean, there's, there's a lot of information on that. I haven't looked it up for years, but that was something that I do remember, yeah. which has nothing to do with the, the fermentation process. No. It's actually <laughs> other aspects to the other compounds in the chocolate that are causing those issues for dogs. Yeah, no, we don't really, we don't really have a lot of chocolate in our house. So I guess we don't really have to worry about it too much, but just, you know, just thought I'd bring that up since my dog's barking. Maybe he's just mad at us because we keep talking about it. Yes, exactly. So I, I, I don't know. Do you feel like you have a little better understanding? Yeah, I did. I learned so much just now listening to you talk about all of this stuff about chocolate um, and all of the metabolic pathways and um, analytes and stuff that are that's going on. See, and the whole reason why I was even starting to look up all this stuff is because I heard Daniel talking on the WNYC program and 
I was like, well, why change something that works so well? Like it's, I, I love chocolate and I'm assuming most of the chocolate that I love is not with, uh, using isolated strains of yeast and bacteria. And so I'm like, well, why? Because I, I, I just, especially with the 400 different potential microbes involved in the process, it's like, well, that sounds like complexity to me. And I understand that, that, that complexity is not necessarily a good thing. It's got to be the right kind of complexity and the right kind of process. But like, I actually was originally looking any of this stuff up because I wanted to, to find the reasons for why to wild ferment, like it's always been done. And I still don't think there's validity to like, con- to control it all. But I think I can see having understood more of the steps and how short of a process it is that maybe there would be some benefit when you're talking about high, high dollar expensive chocolate that a person wants to be able to sell for a decent amount of money and, and have consistency. And even if it's not, even if there's seasonality to it, it's not like it's, but, but to have to know what they're going to get. I can, I can see the value in that after having done this research. So I was hoping this whole conversation was going to be about like wild versus starter cultures and both of us on, on different sides, but it didn't really happen that way. I think that there's good in both having wild fermentations and controlled fermentations. It's the same thing as, um, and it gives you different end products too. Um, just the same diversity. As, so yeah. That, yes. Just that's the what same this is as, just the same as, um, you want to have a starter culture when you're doing dairy fermentations and um, usually in brewing fermentations and wine fermentations, but it maybe wouldn't have the same effect if it was like a vegetable fermentation. You wouldn't get the – if you had a starter culture because um, that's what makes them interesting and unique and different. Whereas in dairy products, I know that you want – you know, sometimes you want something that's a little different, but it's kind of nice to have the continuity and the consistency with starter cultures. There's pros and cons of each. And I like yeah. your, I, I, that's always a good way to look at it as diversity. It's not, it's not one or the other, at least not at this point. Um, I think that's the whole reason why I, I am a big proponent of those heirloom yogurts, just because it's like, well, the, the direct set versions of even those heirloom yogurts, like you can slap all those, those microbes together, but you're not necessarily ever going to get a, a colony that stands up the test of time because those are just the main ones that have been cultured. So that, that have been isolated and there's probably more to it that creates that balance that lasts long, long, long term. And so that's the reason I guess why I like, I guess sometimes I forget that it's not either or unless we lose some of those things, but with something like, like a cacao fermentation, it doesn't really even matter if the whole industry went to starter cultures. It's such a spontaneous fermentation. It's not about like back slopping or anything that could always go back if, didn't work out or if laboratories disappeared, people could still get their chocolate. <laughs> and some people are really dependent on chocolate. So, I mean, I think a lot of people would be disappointed if um, all of that happened and you couldn't get chocolate anymore, but luckily that's not the case. So any last parting words about chocolate or cacao fermentation? Uh, no, I think that we covered that pretty well, but I did want to mention in our next episode, we're going to have um, a guest. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Um, we're going to have Austin from the San Diego uh, Fermenters Club here. I tried to do the dun, dun, dun thing because I was, I kind of paused. I kind of, because this is the guy that wore the, the cape. Oh yeah, that's right. At first I thought you were I was just trying doing to think a, of like a present, presentation thing. Like, No, I felt, I see it needed, I need more clarity, um, but it was, <laughs> it was meant to be like kind of a superhero kind of sound. Oh, okay. And I couldn't think of anyone specific, like the, the superheroes here and Maybe I'll find a soundbite to be able to put in for next episode. <laughs> if you want to send any questions or comments or suggestions on uh, topics even, send them to podcast at firmup.com. And then you can also find the show notes for this episode at firmup.com slash podcast slash 58. And then you can find us on Twitter at firmup or on Facebook at firmup, Pinterest at firmup, Google at plus firmup. And till next time, firmup. <laughs>